Yeah, the kids are dismissed to go downstairs. As the kids are, are leaving to go downstairs, I just want to share with you, um, I, I have perhaps the best seat in the church. I have that wonderful blessing of being able to see what everyone is doing. I don't see everything, but I, I see a lot more than probably most anyone else. Uh, as, as Bruce shared, he gets to see a lot of what the deacons do, and it's a quiet ministry, isn't it? It's a very quiet ministry that goes unnoticed. I sit around an elder's table, and I get an opportunity to see what the elders do. And uh, maybe not everyone can see all of the, the busy service that the elders give to this church. I know many of you do know. Uh, and during this transition, as I'm uh, just have a few more weeks before I'm I'm leaving, it has been very encouraging to me to see the way in which the elders of this church have stepped up. And uh, just look at the way the service has run today, with Dan and Bruce taking a, a lead from the front and leading us in worship. And I would just ask you to come around the elders, ask them how you can support them. Uh, how can you be a blessing and not a burden? Uh, pray for them. Uh, support them in whatever way that you can. Uh, maybe I'll just ask, well, no, we won't do that. But you know who your elders are and just continue to, to pray for them and, and ask them, uh, what would you need right now for the health of this church? So I'd like to personally thank the elders uh, for your service to the Lord and for the great honor and pleasure has been for me to serve alongside you. So thank you. Transitioning now to this morning's message, uh, I, I'm giving a series of, of sermons that are basically things I really want to make sure that I say before I am gone. Uh, and today's message is, is really nothing new. It's a repeat of, of a theme that is very dear to my heart. If you've been at The Rock for... Uh, five, six, seven years, we've spent a lot of time talking about this very thing. And especially David, we spent years going through the life of David and, and Solomon and Jeroboam and in that part of the scripture, just exploring what does the Bible say about David? What, what can be instructive for us about David's life? How can we understand Jesus and the gospel and our salvation a little bit better, a little bit more clearly by looking at David? And so I'd like to go back to David. One more sermon on David before we're through. Uh, if there's one thing that I hope would be remembered of my preaching ministry here at The Rock, it would be uh, the insight that God has given to me and the, the, the preaching that has been done to help us to understand who David was and who God was in David's life. Because if we have a right understanding of the relationship between God and David and the salvation of David and the role that David played in salvation history, I believe that the whole Old Testament opens up for us in a new way. No longer does it become a book that seems very far away from us, very difficult to apply to us, but it becomes a mirror in which we look and we say, wow, if God could do that for David, he could maybe do that for me. And of course, there's no maybes about it. What God has done for David, He longs to do for you and for me. Would you open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7? This chapter, which is often called the Davidic Covenant, is in many ways, and perhaps there's a few other chapters that you could point to and say the same thing about, but in many ways, this chapter is the heart of the Old Testament. That, that without a proper understanding of this chapter, the Old Testament becomes very difficult to get your head around. But a right understanding of this chapter will lead you to a proper interpretation of the Old Testament and you'll begin to see the way in which the Gospel is presented in the Old Testament Scriptures, in the Old Covenant. I've said it before, I'll say it again. In both the Old and the New Covenants, in both the Old and the New Testaments, God speaks to us by law. He, he, he gives us His holy, perfect, righteous standard. But none of us can live up to that perfect standard. And so, in both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, God saves us by grace. That's what we're going to see today. This is a chapter all about grace. And the plan of God to bring a Messiah into the world to be our 
Savior. Our Savior and David's Savior. Would you please stand with 2 Samuel 7 open before you. This is the Davidic covenant. When King David lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. So Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan the prophet, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and I have cut off all your enemies from before you and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. I'll appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this covenant that You made with David. We see in it the seeds and the promise of the gospel fulfilled in the son of David, Jesus, our Messiah and our God. Help us to understand the gospel of grace from this chapter, from these promises. And by your spirit, would you help us to rest in your grace? In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. We're not going to spend very much time on the verses that I just read to you, but they are a necessary foundation for what we really want to speak about. Let me just uh, summarize what we read uh, this way. The Davidic covenant is a sixfold, eternal, unconditional promise issued from God to David on behalf of the world. That's what we just read. It's... Uh, Sixfold, eternal, unconditional promise issued from God to David on behalf of the world. This is not a promise just for David, which we'll see uh, in due course. So what is the sixfold nature of this promise? We're going to go through them very, very quickly. And each of these aspects of the, of the promise deserve its own sermon, but, but they just must be summarized here today so that we could get into David's response. Number one, God's promise to David and, and to the world through David is the promise of a great name for David. 
says, I will make of you a great name like the great ones of the earth. And David would be thinking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And and so what God is saying, I'm going to make your name stand alongside the names of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we know with Abraham and passed down to Isaac and Jacob, we saw the promise of the gospel in its, its most kernel form. That God through Abraham would bless all the families of the earth. And so, so this is a continuation of that promise. We know that this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 says it so clear, clearly, uh, that His name is above all names. The name of Jesus is above the name of David. The name of Jesus is above the name of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's above all names. His name is on par. It's equal to the name of God Himself. And that's why we say that He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Yahweh, Jesus. His name is equal to the name of God. And Jesus is a son of David. That's the fulfillment of the first part of the sixfold promise. Number two. God's promise is the promise of a place for God's people to be planted. Uh, here we're said that my people Israel, but we know later that, that we Gentiles get grafted in. And the promise given to Israel, we don't replace Israel, but we get grafted in. We get to, to reap the benefit of the promises that God has made to Israel. On the one hand, the promise is the promised land that God gave to Abraham. So you see the continuity here, right? A name and a place, a name and a land. But the fulfillment of the land given to Abraham, the fulfillment of this place promised to David for all of God's people is the new heavens and the new earth. When God will actually destroy this universe and resurrect it in glory and put heaven on earth, that's the place that God has promised to David and through David to all the world. Number three. Is the promise from God to David of rest and of peace. No more war. We went through the book of Hebrews and we're told God has extended an invitation to us through Jesus Christ. Enter my rest. Ultimately, this is a promise of our own resurrection from the dead and the resurrection of all people, some unto condemnation. But for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are resurrected unto eternal life and rest. And in that place, there will be no more war. We'll no longer have to fear our enemies. God will put a place for us. And in that place, there is the tree of life and we will be eating the leaves from that from that tree. And then we're told in Revelation 22, one or 22, I can't remember, at the end of the Bible, that the leaves are for the healing of the nations. Rest and peace. You see how this is all being fulfilled. Number four, David wanted to build a house for God, but God says, no, 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 you've got that backwards, David. You don't make me a house. I make you a house. House has a lot of meanings in Hebrew. It can mean family. It can mean political dynasty. It can mean a temple. It can mean a palace. So which which house does God have in mind? Well, David thought that he would build a temple for God. So David had a very specific view of the house that he wanted to build for God. And God says, no, no, no. You don't build me a house. I build you a house. Which house does God have in mind? All of it. The full range of what that word can mean. God says, I'm going to do that for you. Uh, he is going to build a family for David through the son of David. And we become children in God's house. A political dynasty in which the son of David reigns as king supreme forever and ever. A temple. We are pillars in the temple that God is going to build for David and has built and is building And a palace, we're told that in the new heavens and the new earth, that place that God has prepared for us, at the center of that place, when heaven comes down, there's the throne of God. Not an imitation palace, but the new creation itself becomes God's palace. And He reigns from the new Jerusalem on the resurrected earth in a resurrected universe at the center of all things from His throne. And what's the promise to you and to me? If we, if we persevere, if we endure with Him, we will also reign with Him. These amazing promises given to David fulfilled in Christ. Number five, the promise of an heir. 
God actually in this Davidic covenant says, this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to raise up your offspring after you. Uh, so Solomon is the son that originally gets things started. He builds a brick and mortar temple and God fills that temple with his glory. But ultimately, it's the son of David, Jesus, the Messiah, who goes into the temple and cleanses it because of all of the abomination of God's people. And he says, tear down this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. Referring to his own body. All of these promises come to pass through the son of David, Jesus, our Messiah. Finally, the sixth part is that this will be an eternal promise, an eternal blessing. This is not temporary. This is not for a time. This is not even for an age, a long age. This is forever. All of the ages to come. God will bring this to pass through David, for David, for the world. Jesus, the Son of David, is the one who will reign over this sixfold promise forever and ever. And it's been secured by His blood, by His death, by His resurrection. That is enough for one day. Think about the glory of God's promises and how He has brought them to pass and how He's promised them not just to David but to you and to me through the Son of David. Now what did David do to deserve this? This is where it becomes really instructive for you and for me. What was so good about David that God would make such a promise to him? Well, if you read in 1 Samuel 13.14, or if you go to Acts 13.22, we're told that God gave this sixfold promise to David because David was a man after God's own heart. But what does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? This is where it's so important. If we, if we get this wrong, then we will get the gospel wrong. And if we get the gospel wrong, then we don't receive the promise. So this is very important that we understand. What does it mean that David was a man after God's own heart? In order to get this answer, what I want us to do is to look at David's response to the Davidic covenant. When, when God gave David this sixfold promise, what did David say? And David responds appropriately to God's promise. And so if we want to understand what David did to deserve this, what it means for David to be a man after God's own heart, let us look to David's self-understanding and the words of David preserved in Second Samuel chapter 7. Then we will understand what it means to be after a man after God's own heart. Then we will understand how it is that we with David can receive the promise that God has issued forth to David. Open your Bibles if they're not already open there to 2 Samuel 7. We're going to read through the rest of the chapter. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Verse 19. And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind. O Lord God. So what more can David say to you? For you, you're the one that knows your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart. You have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you and there is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be His people? 
making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. That you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken. Then your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of God, of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Amen. Three observations will help us to understand what it means to be a man after God's own heart. The first thing that we must come to terms with This is absolutely foundational for a right understanding of the Davidic covenant, for a right understanding of the Old Testament scriptures, for a right understanding of the gospel. We must understand this first part. David did not merit his position before God. God did not look down from heaven and say, where is a man that I could be pleased with that I may give him a sixfold eternal blessing? That's not how it worked. David did not merit his position before God. Number two, it is God who chose to set his heart on David according to his own sovereign will and choice. Number three, in response, David calls on God to keep his promise. That's an important part too. That we can hold God to His Word. Let's take a look at these three points in order. Number one, God, or sorry, David did not merit his position before God. Just look at verse 18. After David hears the Word of the Lord through Nathan the prophet, remember the context is, and this is really important in order to get the full punch of verse 18. David has just solidified the kingdom. He has just established Jerusalem as his, as his capital. He is king over all twelve tribes. He has been given rest from all of his enemies. He has brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And now he says, what am I going to do next? And every ancient city had a temple for their God. And so building a temple for God was as much for him as it was uh, for God, I would suggest to you. But let's just give David the benefit of the doubt. What does David say? David said, oh, look what God has done for me. I was a little shepherd boy, eighth in line to my father's inheritance. And it wasn't that big to begin with. I, I had no hope. I was going to get the crumbs of my father Jesse's inheritance. But God has taken me from the field and he has placed me over his people. He's made me king. And he's made me a mighty king. So given David all the benefit of the doubt, David says, well, the least I can do is build a house for God. That's bad theology, people. Do you you see that? Do you see that that is is a bad approach? Why? David thinks in, in his heart that he can do anything for God. David does, has nothing to offer God. What does Jesus say on the Sermon Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. 
You know, what God wants of David, what God wants of us is where David ultimately gets in this chapter. But he, he, God wants us to be poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, what does it mean to be poor in money? I got nothing in my pockets to give you. I've got nothing to buy a loaf of bread. I've got nothing. I'm poor. I'm destitute. I am entirely dependent on the charity and the welfare of others toward me. That's what it means to be poor. To have nothing. And God wants us to come to Him with that posture. Not, look what I have done for you. You did this for me, I'll do that for you. You did this for me, I'll do that for you. Because then we share in the glory the glory belongs to God. We are poor. God is rich. God lavishes His riches upon us. It is God who gives. It's we who receive. And so David's posture is wrong even if we give him the benefit of the doubt. He has nothing to give God. And that's exactly this. God says, who are you, David, to build a house for me? I am just getting started in building a house for you. Be poor in spirit. And, and David learns and, and Nathan comes and he delivers the word of the Lord to David and David gets it. And then David responds properly. Verse 18, then King David went in and he sat before the Lord and now he gets it right. Not I'm going to build you a great house, God, for what you've done for me. Sort of payback. He says, who am I before you, O Lord God? What is my house? Remember, this is all about building houses. What is my house? That you've brought me this far. Now David gets it. Do we get it? Sometimes we can become smug in the good works we do for God. And... and I recognize that I'm uh, preaching this opens up me up to a whole litany of uh, rebuttals. Well, aren't we supposed to live for God? Aren't we supposed to give our best to God? Aren't we supposed to be holy because God is holy? Absolutely. But it must come from a posture of poverty in spirit. 1 Corinthians 15.10 Paul says, I worked harder than all of the other apostles. That's quite a thing to say. But Paul says it. And he puts it in print. It's in our Bible. God must agree with him. I worked harder than all of them. But it wasn't me. It was the grace of God at work in me because I am the worst of sinners. But I acted in ignorance and unbelief. And with the great riches of His grace, He he lavished them upon me so that I, says Paul, can be an example to everyone of the immeasurable patience and generosity of God towards sinners. So do we give our best to God? Do we work hard for God? Do we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Absolutely, of course we do. Do we do the good works that God predestined us to do, that we should walk in them? Yes, we do. Do we, do we give our entire lives in service of God, recognizing that we are His slaves? Yes, we do. We are blood-bought slaves. But we're poor in spirit first. And we with David say, who, who are we? Oh Lord God, and, and what is our house that You have brought us this far? David did not merit this. This is why it's so devastating when we, when we take the, the saying that David was a man after God's own heart and we say, be like David. There was something in David that God loved. And, and we might say, well, hmm, he struggled with adultery and murder later in his life. That must not be what God loved. And so we go back earlier in his biography and we say, well, there must have been something early on. And the best that we could do is like, well, there was this faith in David that, that God must have loved. But you read, carefully in David's biography as preserved in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, that man was, was a rabid sinner. He didn't have to wait to the end of his life. Even when he walked onto the field with Goliath, he had mixed motives. But 
but God set his heart upon David. You see, that's what it means in English. If I say, oh, you're a man after my own heart. What I mean by that in English is there's something in you that reminds you of me and I like it. That's because somebody misunderstood the Bible when they were coining that English idiom. What it should mean is the way I love my wife, that my wife is a woman after my own heart. What does it mean? I've set my heart upon her unconditionally, no matter what. That's what it means. It's all about God's heart, not David's heart. It's all about God's initiative, not David's initiative. It's about God's goodness, not David's goodness. It's about God's character, not David's character. David is a wretched sinner. No one seeks after God, including David. Who am I, O God, says David? Exactly. You are a wretched sinner, a rebel, an enemy. But God has set His heart upon you. Receive the gift of God's unconditional favor. We've blurred into our second point. Point number one, David did not merit his position before God. Point number two, it is God who chose to set his heart on David. And if you go through verses 19 through 24, David continues and he says, but this is a small thing in your eyes, O Lord. What does he mean? This is a small thing in your eyes. After affirming that he was poor in spirit, like, who am I? I'm just a wretched sinner. Why should you do all this good for me? David says, but you're God. And you can do this. You you have the power and the might. It is your choice. You said to Moses that you will have mercy on whom you will have mercy. You said to Moses, you will have compassion on whom you will have compassion. So I can see, says David, that it is entirely your right, your prerogative for you to choose of your own sovereign will, not because of me, but because of your own plan and purpose to set your heart on me. This is a small thing for you to do. Not, not that it's a small thing. We know that the, the promise given was a massive thing. He, he promised David the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, forgiveness from sins, resurrection from the dead, a, a, a new heavens and a new earth. This is not a small promise, but it's a small thing, meaning that God is entirely in the right. To choose whomever he chooses. In the Davidic covenant, you go over and it says that I will never take my heart away from you and from your offspring the way I took it away from Saul. Now you say, well, that, that is not right. <laughs> it is not right that God would abandon Saul and choose David unconditionally. Now. Can God do that? Is God in the right to choose David and not Saul? Was it because David was better than Saul? Was it because David was a more moral man than Saul? Saul was just a a worse sinner? Be careful. This This is where we go, right? Well, of course. Hmm. God chose David because he was better than Saul. That's not it at all. David, I would argue, you could argue, uh, right up to the point where, where Saul was abandoned by God, Saul demonstrates a much greater fidelity to parents, to his kingdom, than David ever did. To his wife, Saul was married once. What about David? Many wives, many concubines. He treated women horribly. You might make the case from an earthly point of view that Saul was a better man than David. Well, then why didn't God choose Saul and, instead of David? Well, it was a small thing in God's eyes. He, he could choose whomever he wants. That's the point. And it's not that one man was better than the other man. And, and this is instructive for us. Don't, don't you know unsaved people, people who don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're a lot better than the person sitting next to you in the pew? Do you know people like that? Why doesn't God choose them? Why did, he, why did He choose us? We're a lot of miserable sinners, aren't we? It's a small thing for God. What that means is it's up to God. He chooses. It has nothing to do with merit. It has everything to do with God. By the way, why did God choose David instead of Saul? 
David was from the tribe of Judah. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. You think that's a bad reason? Genesis 49. The Messiah is coming from Judah, not Benjamin. It's a small thing. Meaning God has the right to choose whom God chooses. David here also says that this is, if you look down at verse 23, he says, who am I? And now he's trying to make sense of why God would choose him over Saul or anybody else. Who am I that you would do this great thing? Why would you give me this sixfold unconditional promise? Why would you set your heart on me unconditionally? And, And you can see in his prayer, he's wrestling with this. And then he gets to verse 23 and he's starting to figure it out. He's going through the book of Deuteronomy in his mind. Verse 23, and who is like your people Israel? He says, who, who am I? And he says, and who is like your people Israel? What's going on there? David is saying, there's something about what God is doing for me that is a lot like what God has already done for the nation of Israel. And keep going. Israel is the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people. Now, was Israel any better than the other nations? Why Israel? Why not Egypt? Why not Babylon? Why not Assyria? Why not the United States? Why not Canada? Why Israel? Deuteronomy 9 is helpful. And I believe that as as David is praying this prayer to God, he's got Deuteronomy 9 in his mind. And he's saying, oh yes, I remember something about the way God works. The way that God chooses people. The way that God chooses nations. It has nothing to do with the person. It has nothing to do with the quality of the nation. It's just God's will. And in Deuteronomy 9, God says to the nation, this is my paraphrase, you look it up. He says, God through Moses says, when, when you go into the land, when you destroy them and cut them off from the land, when I give you the land that I promised to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, do not think for a moment, Israel, that you're any better than any of those nations, because you're not. You are a stiff necked people. That's some way for God to speak to his chosen people. That's what he says, Deuteronomy 9. And David, after getting these, these, these promises from God, he says, oh yes, I remember something about you, God. You're, this is always how you are. You, you choose these stiff-necked ruffians, these terrible sinners, and you just set your heart upon them. And it's not because of anything that they've done, it's because that's your choice. As it was with Israel, so it is with David. As it is with David, so it is with you and me. God chooses to set His heart upon us because that's who God is. That's how He works. So don't for a moment think that you're any better when God was up in heaven looking down. He says, oh, Adam Brown, something in that guy I like. I'm going to choose him. I was a rebel, an enemy of God. And God in His mercy and grace lavished upon me salvation through Jesus Christ. And He called me. And He didn't just save me. He called me to ministry. And He called me to preach. Not because I'm any better than anyone else outside the church or inside the church. But because it was a small thing in His eyes to do that. And it was a small thing in His eyes to choose you. Not that it's small that He chose you. It's a massive deal. It's big. But it was easy for Him to do it. And He did it. So He's called you out of darkness into light. And He's called you to ministry. And He's created you to be you. And no one else is like you. And He's called you to do the things that He wants you to do. Therefore, David at the end of his prayer, calls on God to keep his promise. After recognizing that he did not merit this sixfold set of unconditional eternal promise, after 
so he recognizes he's poor in spirit. Then he reminds himself in the presence of God that this is just like God to do such a thing. Then he says, and now, God, I'm going to hold you to it because you said it. And I know that your word is trustworthy. Now, we might say, well, that, that's pretty bold. How do you go from being poor in spirit to holding God to his word? Well, the two go together. You see, all we have is his word. I have no merit that I can cling to. On those difficult days when, when the tempest is rocking me back and forth, when I'm, when I'm drawn into all kinds of temptation and sin, when I, when I grow into a place of despair, maybe I'm suffering or being persecuted, or maybe God feels far away. When the waves of, of darkness crash over me, and I look into myself to say, well, you know, there's gotta be something in me that I can cling to. There's nothing. And then I could fall into despair and I could just be like, who am I? And I'm nothing. And, I, and, and God wouldn't choose me. But then we have to be like David and we have to say, God, it has never been about me. It's never been about what I bring to the table. It's never been about my merit. It's always been because you declared it to be so. You said it and I hold you to it. I'm clinging to your promise. Because without your promise, I'm lost. I have no assurance. I have no confidence. I've got no hope. But because you said it, I know it will be true forever. I cling to your word and I hold you to it. Save me because you said you would. Now, this is a boldness. And we can only be bold with God if that boldness comes from a posture of poverty in spirit and because we are swimming in the grace of God. That's why the way the writer of Hebrews says it, approach the throne of grace boldly. If, if the throne is a throne of judgment, don't approach it. Because you'll be condemned. But if the throne is the throne of grace, then you approach the throne of grace boldly and you hold God to His Word. Now what's the difference there? How, how can the same throne be a throne of judgment and a throne of grace? Well, to those who are not saved, those who don't cling to the Word of God and the promises of God, then the throne is a throne of judgment. They better not dance in a casual way into the presence of God for only utter destruction awaits them if they should do such a thing. For they will be judged for who they are, reckless, rebellious, wretched sinners, enemies of God, and they will be condemned. But we, with David, approach the throne of grace boldly, holding God to His Word because there's nothing in us. All of the pride of our spirit is, is poured out before God. And we say, I've got nothing for you. You need to do the work. You need to build the house. Make me a pillar in that house. And He will. And so we rest in God's grace. To summarize, what then does it mean that David is a man after God's own heart? David is a man after God's own heart because he is the undeserving recipient of God's unconditional love according to God's unwavering, sovereign will confirmed through God's unbreakable promise. Say that again. This is a Gospel. This is, this is true of us. David is a man after God's own heart because he is the undeserving recipient of God's unconditional love according to God's unwavering sovereign will by God's unbreakable promise. That's the Gospel. To repeat it, to be a man after God's own heart has nothing to do with David. Everything to do with God. Nothing to do with David's heart at all. David's heart was black and sinful. But he was circumcised. 
David is a man after God's heart entirely by grace. And from this point forward, David rests in that grace with confidence that God would be true to his word, that God would keep his promise. Even when he falls into adultery, even when he falls into murder, he clings to the unconditional promises of God. And God does not abandon him. I love the way God ordered David's life. The Davidic covenant comes before his uh, adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Bathsheba's husband Uriah the Hittite. Is that an accident? No. I mean, God, from before the foundation of the world, knew that those things would happen. And He gives David His unconditional promises before. Why? To make the point, in case we missed it the first time through, that, that David's place in salvation history, David's salvation, David's greatness has everything to do with the work of Christ and nothing to do with the work of David. So my pastoral exhortation to you this morning is that all of us, like David, would be men and women after God's own heart. That, that we would be poor in spirit. That though undeserving, we would receive God's unconditional love according to God's unwavering sovereign grace by clinging to God's unbreakable promise sealed by the blood of His Son and David's Son, Jesus, our God and our Messiah. And whatever it is that that is preached to you, whatever it is that you understand through your own reading of the Bible, as you exhort one another in love, may it always be from within the context and the perspective of poverty in spirit and, and the limitless pouring out of God's grace for your salvation. So when we exhort ourselves to holy behavior, and we ought to do that, it is always coming from a place of already in God's grace, already in God's love, already in God's family, already united with Christ in His death, already united with Christ in His resurrection from the dead, already seated with Christ on high, already reigning with Christ over every everyone and everything for every age to come already. And yet, we work that out. But may it always come from grace. Work hard. Not to earn God's favor, but because of God's favor. Be holy. Not to be more righteous in God's sight, but because you are are already fully righteous in His sight. Be that which God declares you to be. It is my prayer that we would deeply embrace every day of our life through the good times and the hard that our right standing before God has everything to do with God's heart, nothing to do with our own hearts. That the merit we have before God is given to us, imputed to us by grace. Once we do that, it is my prayer that we as a church would rest in this grace. And that we would call on God to keep His promise. In case you wonder how I can read us into this, how am I bending this? David himself, with eyes of a prophet, foresaw that this promise was not just for him, but it was for his entire house, for the entire nation of Israel, and for all of the nations over the face of the earth. So I want to close with this. Look at verse 19. This was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. That is your right to do it. You have spoken not just of David, but also of your servant's house for a great time to come. David recognizes not just a personal promise for him, but extends to his entire house. That is the house of David. And then he doesn't stop there. He actually jumps right over Israel, though Israel would be included in this. 
And this, what? This what? This promise. And my response to this promise is instructive for all mankind. O Lord God. Through the Son of David, this promise is for every person in every nation over the face of the earth. At least it's extended to every person. But it will be received by those whom God has chosen. Find peace, then, in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the Son of David. And then live for Him. Not because you can build anything for Christ worth giving to Christ. But in a response of worship, because he has done everything. He has done all the work. He has built the house. We are but pillars in that house. Be a church that rightly understands the gospel from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Be a church that rightly extends the gospel then with a right understanding to a dead and dying world. Be messengers of hope. Be ministers of reconciliation in this community, in Woodstock, by helping others to come to understand God's grace. And then helping others to rest also in that grace. And then exhort one another to holiness, but ensure that all exhortations toward holy living are firmly rooted in the grace of God. May the grace of God be at work in us transforming us into greater holiness from one degree of glory to another until our dying breath or the return of the Lord. For the promises given to us through David will and have already started to come to pass. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You that He has fulfilled the promises that you have given to us through David and that all things work together according to your will that you chose David you set your heart upon him and you have chosen us if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that we did not seek you you sought us and you plucked us out from a dead and dying world and you placed us in your family to be pillars in your house to be raised from the dead so that we might reign with Christ for every age to come Forgive us when we make the gospel too small. Forgive us when we make the gospel about ourselves and forget that it is as big as you are and it comes from your heart alone. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for all that you've done for us. In the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.